This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. The Bible says, uh, and I think we took a text scripture last, uh, last Sunday morning of Mark chapter 11. Uh, we all know verses 22 and 23 and 24 where it talks about faith. But verse 25, Jesus goes on to say, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Because if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. Well, that's not the, the way that forgiveness works now that Jesus has gone, been to the cross and raised from the dead. Forgiveness under the old covenant, and even when Jesus was here on the earth, was dependent on you forgive others and God will forgive you. Well, that's not how it works now. Ephesians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse, uh, well, let's just start in verse 29. It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, watch your words. But that, or only that which is good to the use of edifying, building other people up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. We need to be aware of what we're saying and the impact it has on other people, in other words. And he goes further and says in verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Um, our words can grieve God. Our words to other people can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that he leaves you. It means that it will hinder you, just like grief in any area will hinder you. It'll cause you to lose your focus. It'll cause you to lose your, uh, um, well, when we're grieving about something, it makes us dull. Speaking the wrong words, living a lifestyle where we speak the wrong words, words that don't lift people up and instead bring them down, will cause us to lose our spiritual sharpness or will cause us to be spiritually dull. The Holy Ghost doesn't leave us, but you will be less conscious of him being there and you'll be less conscious of his direction. So it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So this must be the corrupt communication that he's talking about in verse 29. He's saying don't say bitter words. Don't be clamorous or use your, let your words create strife with other people. Don't be angry in your words and sin. Remember, Paul says a little bit further on in the fifth chapter, he says, be angry and sin not. Anger itself is not a sin, but you can let it result in sin if you don't watch what you say and do. And he goes further in verse 20, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 32, and says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now notice this is different than the Old Testament, forgive and it'll be forgiven you. This is forgiving, we're supposed to forgive as other people, uh, I'm sorry, we're supposed to forgive other people as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. In other words, we're supposed to forgive like God does. Well, how did God forgive? God didn't wait for you to say you were sorry. He sent Jesus to the cross anyway. He didn't make, and, and even salvation is not a matter of you telling him all the wrong things that you've ever done. You couldn't remember all the wrong things you've ever done. He has forgiven you for Christ's sake. That doesn't have anything to do with because of the way Jesus feels or anything like that. For Christ's sake literally means because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. So we're supposed to forgive. Isn't it? Uh, it's always seemed to me to be interesting that Paul would have to tell Christians to be kind to one another. Because that's not our natural tendency, is it? Tenderhearted toward one another. Well, that's not our natural tendency either. Now, we'll be tenderhearted to people that are good to us. We'll be kind to people that are kind to us. But we always want to step back and let somebody else make the first move, don't we? That's the natural tendency. And that's what he's saying, that things are different. That's how things have changed under the new covenant now that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're supposed to forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 18. 
Jesus talking about forgiveness, and of course, he wasn't just speaking of forgiveness under the old covenant. He's talking about the principle of forgiveness, knowing what he's going to do when he goes to the cross. Notice what he said about forgiveness. He answered a question. I, uh, here's Peter stepping up and saying something. Uh, you know, I, I just, every time I see Peter speaking up in, in Jesus' ministry, nine times out of ten, I just can't help but think that afterwards he thinks, why did I say a word? Why didn't I keep my mouth shut? So it says here in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? I'm thinking Peter's thinking seven times is a lot. I mean, otherwise, if he's really wanting to know, if the answer to the question is really on his mind, how often should I forgive somebody, why does he throw in seven times? You see my point? He must be trying to say, get Jesus to say, oh, seven times is great, Peter. You're doing good. But Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 22, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seventy. I'm sorry, seventy times seven. The number's too big for me. I get messed up on it. That's 490 times. Now, notice what the, the question is. If somebody does me wrong on purpose, it's not talking about an accident. It's talking about if somebody does me wrong on purpose, how often should I put up with that? Jesus says 490 times. Now, in Luke 17, Luke's account of this says that the apostles heard this and they said immediately, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> well, that's a good statement because they understand that forgiveness is going to have to be a faith proposition, not a feeling proposition. If you're going to be held responsible to forgive like that, and folks, this is a good example. I, I, don't, I don't really think it's possible for somebody to do you wrong 490 times a day. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. But nevertheless, I think Jesus is just trying to throw a number out there that's beyond their ability to comprehend in real life experience to show the way that God forgives. In other words, God's forgiveness is without understanding. It's before you ever ask for it. We come to Jesus having found out what Jesus did, not trying to get him to do something for us. Now, I want to talk to you about three words this morning, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Now, my purpose this morning is to talk about some things from a scriptural standpoint because there is a lot of misunderstanding about the love of God out there, it seems to me, at least from what I hear people say. A lot of a misunderstanding. And forgiveness is something that is required of us. It's not required of you but for one reason, and that is to release you so that God can work in your life. That's the whole reason that God requires us to forgive. He requires us to forgive so that you get free from the bondage of unforgiveness. Now, you forgiving other people may have no impact on them whatsoever. No impact whatsoever. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. We're right here in Matthew chapter 18. Why don't you go ahead and turn back with me to chapter 7. Notice in chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And what measure you meet, meaning judgment, it shall be measured unto you again. The way that you judge other people is the way that you're going to be judged. Now, we take that verse of Scripture, or the church takes that verse of Scripture, and it comes up with this blanket statement that we should never judge. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that is the Bible tells us to judge. For example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in about verse 14, he said, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, who is the natural man? Well, certainly the natural man would be the unsaved man, but it could also be the carnal Christian, the person who's been changed from the inside but still living according to the flesh. And that's what he means here when he's talking about the natural man. He's talking about the man that lives according to the flesh. And that man can be in one of two categories. He can either be unsaved, and certainly an unsaved person, that's all he can live by is the flesh. Or it could be the person who has been saved but hasn't renewed their mind to the Word so that it's affected their lives. A lot of Christians, you know as well as I do, a lot of Christians live carnal Christian lives. In other words, body-ruled lives, just like the world does. For that reason, a lot of the world can't tell the difference between who's saved and who's not. So it says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Why? Because he's living according to his flesh. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Please notice this. The person that's living according to his flesh cannot know the things of God whether saved in a car, as a carnal Christian, living as a carnal Christian, or the unsaved. They can't know the things of God. doesn't say it's hard for them. It says they can't. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they, the things of God, are spiritually discerned or understood or judged. That's what this word means. It means judged. It's the same word that's used and translated judged in verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of, Christ, mind of the Lord that he, we may in, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we've got what some people would consider to be a contradiction in Scripture. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Judge not lest you be judged. Paul said by the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians 2, He that is spiritual judges all things. Now, the reason that I'm going in this direction is because we want to talk about the love of God. We want to talk about forgiveness specifically. And this idea of judgment seems to be big in, in, in the world around us. I mean, so many times people are saying, well, you're judging me. Or nobody can judge me but God. I saw a a bumper sticker on somebody's car the other day, riding down the road, and it said, nobody can judge me but God. On the other bumper sticker, it had a fish. I thought to myself, I know exactly who that person is. That's a person who's living a carnal Christian life and doesn't want to hear anybody say a word about it. Now, how can these two verses be true? How can we judge not so that we're not judged and still be spiritual and judge all things? Well, folks, the key is judging all things. You can judge all things without judging people. The Bible says judge not lest you be judged, meaning don't judge other people. But that doesn't mean don't judge the things that are going on around you. Now, here's why that's important. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 20, I think it is, says this. It says, An adulterous woman eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Now, that's a good illustration of the way the world's going right now. Because people are doing whatever they want to do and saying, There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Well, is that right or not? I mean, we see the church using, in a lot of cases, using the grace message, using this idea that God has unconditional love. That's a great term, but unconditional love does not mean a doormat variety of love. What I see a lot of people using as unconditional love, describing as unconditional love, they're trying to make an excuse for why God should be okay with whatever they want to do, no matter whether it agrees with the Bible or not. Well, God's going to love me no matter what, and only God can judge me. Well, folks, the Bible's real clear on this. The Word already judges us. 
The Word of God already judges us. It lays out very clearly what we're doing is either right or wrong, as either in line with the principles and, and the, the character of God or contrary to the principles and character of God. There is no matter of judging things as, uh, you know, God judging us for what we do, what we do. The Bible's already there. When you get to heaven as a Christian, there's only one question that God's going to ask you. He's going to say, did you keep my word? That's the only thing we're required to do is to keep the word of God. That's why I thank goodness for the Christian there is no great white throne judgment where God says you sinned here, you sinned here, you messed up here. Okay, once you did good over here, but thank God we don't have any of that. Because for the Christian, the Bible says there's just a, 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 an experience that we have, really a, a, what's intended to be an award ceremony before God where we where the things that we did here on this earth are judged according to the word. And if they were things that were done for eternity, they'll last. If they were things that were done just for the time being, just for the sake of the, of living in the moment, then they'll burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, the Bible says. So what's intended for God, uh, by God to be an award ceremony is going to be for a lot of people a great, great big bonfire. But it's not God judging us. It's the Word already judging things. And that's what we're supposed to use as a standard to judge things. Now, folks, I'm still talking about love. I'm still talking about forgiveness. Because here's the question. If we're not supposed to judge, how can it be that somebody says, well, I didn't do anything wrong? you got two people. One person has been very much hurt. The other person says, I didn't do anything wrong. Who's right? See, here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not ignoring something that happened or pretending that it didn't happen. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. The Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses on the cross. He was wounded, Isaiah 53, 5 says he was wounded for your transgressions, that's sins. He was bruised for your iniquities, that's sins. The chastisement of your peace was upon him, that's provision. That's the penalty or the... Uh, uh, the overcoming of the curse of poverty, and by his stripes you were healed. That's the overcoming of sickness. The Bible says in the same verse, the same verse that Jesus paid the price for your sins, he paid the price for your sickness. Now, if somebody was coming to get saved, we wouldn't expect them to pray all night to see if God would do it, would we? Why is it different with healing? Jesus paid the same price at the same time. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Let me talk to you about reconciliation a little bit. Reconciliation and forgiveness do not always go hand in hand. I had somebody come to me... Um, well, let me, let me give you an example and then I'll, then I'll tell you something that happened uh, years ago in the church. If, for example, you've got two couples that are best friends. If the husband of one couple and the wife of the other couple have an affair, then the husband whose wife had the affair might forgive his wife and may even be able to reconcile the marriage. But the chances are pretty good he's lost his best friend. Chances are pretty good that that husband is never going to be best friends in the same way that friendship is not going to survive or be reconciled in the same way that it was before. Would anybody argue that? 
I mean, unless it's just a wife swap thing, for goodness sakes, how could anybody, you know, go back to the way things were before? Well, should they be reconciled? And here again, you get this, this sloppy love of God attitude that some people have. Well, the love of God forgives and forgets. Folks, there are some things that would be ridiculous to try to forget. Now, let me tell you the story of something that happened in the church years ago. So a family used to come to the church, and, and um, uh, the lady uh, confided in me. She's since uh, come out and gone public with the, the situation, and you don't know who I'm talking about anyway, so this, isn't, uh, this wouldn't betray any confidence. But um, uh, she confided in me at the time that uh, her father had molested her when she was a girl growing up. And, uh, and the mother hit her head in the sand about it, and just denied everything and anything and didn't happen and so forth. And so the mom was really pushing for everybody getting together on Thanksgiving and having these family dinners and everybody just getting along and so forth. And, and the whole family was putting pressure on the, on the, the lady that was in our church. You know, here's what you ought to do. I mean, you, you, this is, this is wrong. Some of them thought that she was falsely accusing the father and others, others thought, well, okay, dad's changed and, and, you know, this, she was just getting it from every angle. And so she came to me one day and she said, Pastor Mike, here's what's going on. What should I do? And I said, well, what do you want to do? She said, well, I don't really know. I'm so confused. I really don't know what I want to do. I, I can't imagine um, being able to sit across the table at these family dinners and stuff like that and, and, and everything be okay. And I said, well, why would you want to? Why w- I don't understand. I mean, if you told me that's what you wanted to do, I'd say, okay, suit yourself. But why in the world would you want to? And she she got this shocked look on her face. And, I mean, here I'm supposed to be speaking for God. And she said, you mean God doesn't expect me to do that? And I said, are you out of your mind? Of course he doesn't expect you to do that. Why would he expect you to do that? Well, because I'm supposed to forgive. And I said, look, we're talking about two different things. I said, what does forgive mean? We went through the whole thing. I said, have you forgiven your father for what he did? She said, yeah, I still have feelings about it, but yeah, I have forgiven it. I said, what do you do when you think about your father? She said, well, I've learned from you that I'm supposed to pray for him. So every time I think about my father or the things from the past, I pray for what he, for him, you know, Lord help him. Certainly he, he wasn't thinking right. I mean, who would do those things to his children with any kind of right thinking? And so she said, I pray for him. I pray for God to bless him. I pray for God to help him. I said, well, then that's forgiveness. I said, you have forgiven him. I said, what your family is trying to push you to do is reconcile with him. I said, has your father admitted what he did? She said, oh, no. He's acted like it never happened. I said, has your father, well, then your father hasn't asked you, has you forgive him? He hasn't acknowledged anything. There's been no effort on his part to try to make things right then, right? She said, oh, no, none whatsoever. I said, well, reconciliation takes two people. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, notice in verse 19, it says, To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now can I ask you a question? Why in the world would the Bible say in verse 19 that God has already reconciled us to himself through Jesus and then tell us in verse 20 that we need to be reconciled to him? The answer is very simple, and that is because reconciliation takes two parties. God can't reconcile us to himself 
and it be a one-sided thing. He's done everything for reconciliation to be made by the work of Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus accepting what he has done. And if you don't accept what he's done, even though Jesus paid the price for every sin that you ever will commit, ever have committed or ever will commit, even though that price has been paid, it doesn't benefit you because you haven't made the move toward God. That's why salvation is your decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. It's your decision to accept the forgiveness that Jesus has made available to you. Well, that's the way reconciliation works in every area, folks. A a relationship can't be reconciled unless both parties want to. So the idea that this, this forgiveness is just this blanket thing that covers everything and, 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 and no matter what, that's just ridiculous. It's foolish. And as a result, a lot of Christians, because they've got this doormat mentality of what the love of God's supposed to be, they put themselves back into the same situations they had before and they get taken advantage of once again. Can you see that? Turn with me back to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Let me show you a little bit further what the Bible says about this. I don't want anybody to take what I'm saying today and, and use it for justification for why they can still be mad at somebody that did them wrong. And I know that it can be taken that way. So let me point out some other things here. We just read the first couple of verses of Matthew 7 about judge not lest you be judged. Notice in verse Three. We'll start in verse three. It says, "And why beholdest thou the mote?" The word "mote" is the word is a word "speck" that means "speck." It means a small piece of something. It said, "And why beholdest thou the speck that is in thy brother's eye, but con- consider not the beam, big stick, that is in your own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote, speck out of thine eye, and behold, a beam or a stick is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First cast out the beam or the big stick." out of your own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote or the speck out of the brother's eye. Now, let me tell you how most people read this. Most people read these verses of Scripture to say, you have no business trying to correct somebody else because you've got your own problems. And that's as far as they go. And so we look at these verses of Scripture and we think, well, okay, then I, I, guess, I'm, I guess I'm supposed to just keep my mouth shut and, and realize that the, I've got my own issues and God has forgiven me of my own things and so I need to leave things alone. That's not what he's saying. Notice he says that the way for you to be qualified to help somebody else with their problems is to be observant of your own first. The whole point is, Be objective about your own issues, about your own life, about your own behavior. And this is the very reason why most family situations aren't put back together without some outside help. Because the family people, the individuals, whatever comes up in the family situation, whatever crisis, whatever circumstance occurs, the two people in the family know each other so well, one starts saying, you know, you need to do this, and the other says, who are you to tell me you need to do this? And so it becomes this loggerhead conflict where nobody is willing to give because nobody is willing to step back and look at themselves objectively and say, you know, you're right, I need to take care of these things myself. Jesus is very simply saying it takes a special qualification to be able to help somebody with the sin in their own life. Now let me compare this to another scripture. We just see where he says, how can you get the, beam, the, smoke, the speck out of somebody else's eye if you've got something in your own eye? By the way, the, the point here is not that the person, the, the first person has a bigger problem than the second person. The same speck looks different depending on how close you get to it. 
See, what's a speck in your eye, if I put right here in my own eye, looks like a big stick. He's saying you both got your own things to deal with. But now, if you want to, hold your finger here. We may come back and look at it a little bit further. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 18. And notice he said uh, in verse 15, he said, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought we weren't supposed to try to help somebody with their problems because we got stuff in our own eyes. How do these things fit together? Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word will be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You know how most people read these verses of Scripture? Aha, here's the process where we can get everybody against the person that did me wrong. We can get the whole church on my side against them. But folks, how do you reconcile these verses of Scripture if Jesus said you can't help somebody else if you got stuff of your own in your own life to deal with, but yet he says if somebody does your own, go to him and talk to him? How can they fit together? Well, folks, it's real simple, and that is he's saying the only way you're going to be able to help somebody is if you're not in a position where you're trying to lord it over them or show them that they did wrong or get one up on them. You're going to have to be objective about your own life and your own situation so that this is not a gotcha situation. And most people aren't willing to do that. Most people are not willing to look at themselves objectively and see, wait a minute, what are my issues? He's not talking about my issues versus your issues. He's talking about live in a way that you examine yourself. Paul said it this way. Paul said in writing to the the Corinthians about the way that they were taking communion. He said, let a man examine himself so that he doesn't fall into condemnation of the world. We should live our lives in such a way that we're examining ourselves. So that if we do something that causes somebody else a problem, we ought to be the first one to know it, not them. And if we will live that way, then we are qualified to help somebody with their own problems. That's why family situations are so tough. Because it's hard to be emotionally uninvolved or take a position, a neutral position, where we just care about the other person rather than, you remember I told you, I told you so won't work when you're trying to help somebody else in their situations. And why do we want to help them? Do we want to point them, point out the situations? Here's where you did me wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. If so, you're not qualified. It'll never work. That's what Jesus says. You hypocrite. Take care of your own stuff first. But the love of God should cause us to live in such a way that we take care of our own stuff continuously, shouldn't it? Paul said the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. That's the kind of love that's on the inside of every one of us. We have to develop it. We have to choose to operate in it and walk in it. But that's the kind of love that's already inside of you because God lives there. The Holy Ghost within us will always guide us into the things of God. He'll always guide us according to peace. You can't walk in peace unless you're going to walk in forgiveness because you can't walk in love without forgiving others. Thanks for tuning in today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. So faith begins where the will of God is known. 
God's Word reveals His will to you. And once you know His will, there is nothing that can stop you from receiving what God has for you. That is the number one problem, the number one objection that everybody has, no matter what the area is, healing or whatever, that is the number one objection that people have. They don't know if it's God's will for them. Well, how are we going to find out? The answer is in the Word. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.